Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the mysteries of musical taste, why we love the music we love and hate what we hate. My name is Malcolm Fraser, and back in episode 12 with Julie Blake, she mentioned offhandedly some project that she had been working on involving uh, a scientific measurement of people's response to music. I was curious about it, and I followed up with her. She told me a bit about this project called Brainwaves, uh, a project in which a record label erased tapes, uh, some scientists, and a hotel collaborated uh, to create some music designed to make people relax. Um, it's a bit outside of the purview of uh, my research, but I did think it was interesting. And Julie put me in touch with the guests on the show you're about to hear, uh, David John Baker. We ended up talking a bit about this Brainwaves project, but a whole bunch of other things too. It's a very interesting conversation. It's a bit of a detour again from the usual preoccupations, but not unrelated. I hope you enjoy it. So, David John Baker, you are a scientific researcher of the musical experience. I think that would be uh, an accurate way to describe it, but it sort of depends um, on who I'm talking to, on how I describe myself. But I think in this context, that that works quite well. Okay. Well, can you can you uh, can you tell me a little bit about about your background? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have kind of like a traditional music conservatory background. Uh, I did an undergraduate degree um, in Cleveland where I studied with a guy in the Cleveland Orchestra for a few years in a conservatory setting at Baldwin Wallace. Um, and then after playing basically nothing but trumpet for uh, like four years, I decided maybe I didn't like only want to play pictures at an exhibition the rest of my life. Um, so I started like basically looking around for things that uh, like I think we're related to music, but we're maybe a bit more like intellectual or academic or whatever word you want to use. Um, and I was always really interested in like music theory, but I always felt um, that music theory didn't give me like the kind of answers that I really wanted when it came to questions about music. Um, and I sort of, I think because I had to take like, I think it was like a gym credit in my undergraduate degree, I ended up getting out of it by taking a music psychology course. I don't know how that happened. Um, but yeah, that's a good, uh, a good move. <laughs> yeah. So I wish I'd known about that in like high school. Yeah, I know. I know. So I, I basically stumbled onto it halfway through uh, the whole music psychology, music science thing halfway through undergrad and then um, decided, oh, this actually might be quite fun. So I took like a year off after my, I'm not a year off. I basically just worked at a restaurant and taught trumpet lessons and whatever. Um, and read a lot of books, um, a lot of them were about like music and science and whatnot. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And then I basically changed tracks, ended up, um, going to Goldsmiths, um, and did a master's program there. It's like a one year master's of science in music, mind and brain. Cause I had like done only music. So I figured, okay, maybe I'll just do only science for a year. So that was like quite painful. But then I was like, okay, I think I, this is what I definitely want to do. And then ended up going back to the United States to do my PhD um, back in music theory. Um, but I studied with, um, with a guy who does more like computational corpus stuff. So like music theory with computers. 
um, and a bit of psychology as well. And then since I got my PhD, I've kind of just been trying to stay around the world of music and like research and psychology and computers, um, but like taking brief reprieves here or there if like you know being a trying to become an academic academic is like notoriously difficult so sometimes i'll do things with like teaching or data science or whatever so currently i'm working at goldsmiths uh university of london which is kind of fun that i'm back where i was as a postdoc um in the psychology department looking at the perception of sort of uh basically i don't want to call them jingles because all the guys that work there don't like you want to describe it as that but like audio branding um, um, at scale, so like, you know, what um, what features of a muse of music is memorable um, when you sort of look at that in an applied industrial context. Wow, I mean, that's that's it's everything you say is is so fascinating to me. Um, let's go back a little bit um, to when you said that when you were studying music theory, it wasn't answering the questions that you had about music. So, what were those questions? Um, I had big questions about like, why do things work the way that they do? And a lot of the times in undergraduate music theory, so I don't want to like paint with too broad of a brush because I'm technically a card carrying music theorist and don't want to disparage like (laughs) the sort of straw man argument too much. But at that time, especially at the school that I went to, which is much more conservatory oriented, like really the goal is to make you very good at your instrument. Um, the music mm-hmm. theory classes and the way that it was structured was much more around like being able to do and perform music. Um, and if you had an answer about like, you know, why does the leading tone always resolve up to the tonic note and like four part voice settings, you know, people would like give you literally answers like, well, the, the leading tone always wants to resolve to the tonic and that's just what it wants to do. And like that's describing it and it's like, giving agency to the tone, but it doesn't necessarily say like why it's actually happening. You're just like describing it with different words. So it's a lot of like descriptive Uh theories, which are of course like really helpful and necessary for um, what people want to do. But I was kind of more interested in like explanatory theories. And I think the ideas that I find most satisfying in those types of questions at the time came from the sciences. I think, and then I, that's what made me gravitate to that. Yeah. So the um, the music psychology class you took uh, as a as an alternative to gym, um, which I'm still uh, yeah. <laughs> still I'm still hung up on that. Um, what uh, what kind of things did you learn, or were you studying at that time? Um, at that time, it was more of like a survey course for undergraduates. Like, I'm pretty sure that like the university had like a you know, almost like a deal with the conservatory students that you're able to weasel out of more difficult classes because we had such a you know any mute one who's done a music major will know how busy they keep you. So like it was kind of like a survey class, and all the other you know non music classes I took were like painting and art appreciation and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until the program at Goldsmiths where I started to like really dive in. And the way that things are organized there is they basically have, if I remember correctly, or at least this was when I was there, they had like a psychology of music module, a neuroscience of music module, as well as a bunch of like applied methodology courses um, that basically got you running so you could eventually undertake your own 
music psychology experiment near the end of the taught masters and then collect your own data, analyze it, then hopefully get it published in a scientific journal. Right. Uh, so what was yours? Um, so I, I, that's when I started my whole interest in like um, in musical, like to what extent is like the sort of structure of a music, I'm using the word very specifically, like sort of music theorists might mean it, like the actual notes mm -hmm. relate to aspects of like memorability um, in terms of like musical, explicit musical recall. So what people did in my experiment was listen to a scene from a Wagner opera, actually. And then after listening to it, they were given a surprise memory test in which they had to recall whether or not they'd heard specific things um, in that scene. And then trying to predict essentially what factors um, have to, like are, are, you know, are best at predicting whether or not you remember specific um, Light motifs or not, so it was all around this project looking at the perception of psychological perception of light motifs um, in opera, and the results basically pointed to the fact that it wasn't necessarily musical training, as it was much like exposure to and familiarity with the um, genre itself, or and not anything that having to do with like German speaking ability, um, that were successful predictors of whether or not people remembered that. So in some ways it's like, yeah, duh, I, like, um, I could have told you that in some ways, but at the same time, there's also like this, it's, it's important to like, look at some of the narratives that go around like music circles as well. Like people saying like, oh, only people that have like, you know, really know the German culture and German language can truly appreciate, um, you know, the perception of light motifs and how they're all tucked into these like complex scenes. And, but then something like this, finding something where it doesn't have the predictive power. Of course, it doesn't say that there's nothing to that, but it at least mounts some evidence, you know, in a direction that like maybe it's more about like exposure and accessibility, but well, most more about exposure, which leads to the fact that like these things which are thought of as quite complex are actually quite accessible and learned. And this idea of what does it mean to be musical from a perception point of view um, is much more varied and diverse and maybe is made up of like separate but related constructs as opposed to one sort of monolithic like musicality. Um, and that's a big question that people try to answer in the music psychology literature is like, how, to what extent <laughs> are there specific, you know, modules of perception dealing with music perception in the brain or in human behavior, as opposed to like, oh, maybe it's just like other things um, that your brain, you know, cobbles together to figure out what music perception is. Right. Okay, um, so I'm 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 uh, not at all in the sciences, so I'm 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 struggling a little bit to, to keep up with what you're saying. But I but if I but when you when you when you say when you talk about the separate but related constructs, what what are some examples of, of those? Yeah, so I think when you think about something like, you know, how good are you at recognizing a melody, for example. Um, or like, I guess maybe a better version of that would be thinking about like, you know, how how much of a musician are you, right? So it's like a quite loaded question for people who are musicians mm -hmm. and, or how musical are you or something like that. And it's, uh, comes with like a lot of cultural baggage, right? Where some people say, oh, I'm definitely very, very musical. Um, 
or someone would say like, oh, I'm really, really musical, but I'm not a musician, you know, or like they think that because, you know, you have to have formal training to do this or you have to be a professional person, a professional musician to call yourself a musician. Um, mm -hmm. And even if you do do that and you are a professional musician or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean you're good at like what might be considered musical abilities. And this is also getting a bit like a big footnote or star around this would be the idea that just because someone breaks down a specific musical ability doesn't mean that they've like boiled down the essence of it. So like there's a big history in music psychology of like looking at melody perception and beat perception and wondering like mm -hmm. to what extent are those like related but separate, right? So you would imagine that they're correlated, that if someone's quite good at remembering melodies, they might also be very good at like keeping a beat to um, a piece of music, but they don't necessarily have to be correlated, right? It's not like some sort of music module is governing both melodic perception and beat perception. It might be that there's, uh -huh. you know, a specific module for beat perception and a specific module for melody perception. Um, and the question is like, okay, well, what, you know, what's the best way to think about how do we start breaking these things up? Does that, does that kind of explain it? I think so. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's just, you know, it, it opens up a, a huge uh, other field of perceiving music from, you know, anything that I've, uh, any way that I've looked at it before. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed that your trajectory of being a musician who then goes into science is not all that common. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have a massive survivorship bias amongst all of my colleagues. So a lot of people who study music uh, psychology started out as musicians. So I'm like, oh, yeah, there's tons of us. But I know that like throughout, <laughs> throughout the, uh, the, the, the most of the world, I know that that is more of a rare thing. But yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's just to say that, um, you know, I, I'm I'm fascinated by by what you're saying but it's it to me it's a new a new way of uh th these ideas are new so i'm just kind of like trying to wrap my brain around them a little bit um because you know get you know the reason why i asked that was because for me just as an individual you know when i was in high school i got straight a's in all the arts classes and my science class was notable for like my science notebook would have trails going off the page where I f fell asleep while I was trying to write. Um, and I, I had so much trouble understanding or uh, internalizing that way of looking at things. Um, and that's given me a bit of a bias, uh, a bias against, you know, uh, using hard science to interpret music. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I find it so interesting. Um, you talked about the history of, of music psychology. Um, for a layman, could you, could you break down like that history a little bit? Like when did people start studying that? Ooh, yeah, I guess it depends how far back you want to go. So like, it's weird. Cause like nowadays people have this sort of intuition about like, oh, this is music and that's science and and whatever mm -hmm. and i think that's important to like divide up 
you know, who's kind of doing what and like what are their reasons and like the values behind like what they're studying. Like I don't think it should be all grouped the same and I'm not saying it's all the same. Um, but like historically, like music and science and like what was thought of as like music theory and whatnot were, were a bit more like uh, concentrated. Like if you go all the way back to like the quadrivium or whatever, you know, where people are studying uh, like music alongside mathematics uh, and whatnot, mm-hmm. like if you ask someone then, like, they'd be like, oh, yeah, they're actually quite similar. They're part of, like, the core, you know, things that we should be studying if we want to be, yeah. you know, uh, enlightened people or whatever. Um, but then, like, nowadays, you know, music and science are a bit further apart, possibly, um, mm-hmm. in some ways. But then if you look at, like, you know, the middle of the 17th and 18th century, people were, you know, just as interested about, like, these sort of questions of perception as they pertain to composition and like, would you call that science or like, is that specifically psychology in terms of like what they're actually doing? Um, so it's, you know, you can construct a like a linear sort of chronological narrative that like you might use to sort of like teach an undergraduate class to kind of like keep it together. So it's like, OK, well, this thing kind of led to that thing, kind of led to that thing. But like at the highest level, and I think the level that's most interesting to think about is like how you kind of like bring your own cultural baggage when you're looking at something in history and being like that science that's not science or or like you said like hard science and not science or soft science Mm -hmm. or whatever and like even those types of terms are all quite loaded in terms of like what they mean and what we value and like how we think about like what questions we're asking so and i i I like ramble about this because it's also really important from a music science point of view to like also note that like the category of music is just like not a stable category itself. So even if you sure. were just like say like, oh, we've got like this sort of experiment or these computational tools and we're like looking at this one specific aspect of music, you know, you really have to define what you mean. And a lot of people mean like the sonic element that we can record or write down and understand here, but that's not like a universally accepted um, definition of music. And it's like quite Western um Mm -hmm. and like you know eurocentric in a lot of ways so like as a result unsurprisingly music psychology and science is like followed in a lot of those footsteps too so it's like it's just worth mentioning because it doesn't necessarily mean like oh we're using science we're gonna find the answers there's some sort of like real (laughs) objective reality out there like i like to think of it more in terms of like what i do as like you're using music which is not going to define i'm just going to say okay whatever you think of it as it is like maybe a a complex cultural phenomenon or complex human behavior and using it as like a vehicle or a window to study human cognition um and then like Mm -hmm. you get all these weird things that come along with whatever you want to call music and then it gives you like this new lens to think like ah like that's a weird thing that people do or like isn't it weird that like you know, you could play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and like C and then in F sharp and everybody's like, you know, that's actually the same melody where like most of the notes, like the physical tones that hit you aren't necessarily the same. And you're like, okay, well, why mm-hmm. why would that be the case? Like, why would your brain be like, well, these are, why would they group them together as similar constructs? Right. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. And uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, to briefly revisit this, you know, when I talked about you know, hard science versus soft science. I, I, I don't mean, you know, especially in this day and age to, to seem like a, 
a skeptic of science uh, <laughs> in, in general. Uh, but I do, I mean, from my, you know, extremely ignorant layman's position, I do sometimes feel like, you know, hard science, you know, per se, is about being able to quantify results, right? Yeah, I, I think, well, it's, it's about, to me, it's about precision, like all the physics people and the biology people and chemistry people, I feel like what they kind of, you know, would tout over psychology people or like, you know, if you would even call, uh, I'd get in trouble for even making this joke, but like a uh, economist, a scientist, you know, like it, it's about like the precision of your tools. Like you have a pretty good idea. Like if I threw an apple out of my, you know, flat here, like exactly how many seconds it would take to hit the ground and have a really good like model of that. So I have a specific action, mm -hmm. a specific thing I'm doing, a specific context, and I really know what's going to happen and I can predict it quite accurately. But like in the, the you know, the soft sciences or whatever, the prediction is much more more difficult in that context because everything is a lot like more complex and uh, more messy. But I think you're right to be skeptical of some of the science stuff. I mean, a lot of the time it feels like, you know, pe people, you know, are trying to use the trust in science as a way to basically have power over people. And that's something that I don't think is discussed a lot. Of course, like I'm not, you know, an anti-vaxxer or something like that. And that's a whole, you know, thing in itself. But like, mm -hmm. you know, you have to, you should be able to question what you're talking about when you're like talking about scientific ideas. Cause like, if you just look at a history of science, like a lot of the time, you know, what was considered scientific, you know, people like laugh at nowadays. And like, you don't want to set yourself up in like, you know, 50 years time. Like, oh, they thought this, like <laughs> what idiots, like where did they go to school? You know, but that's just like, that's just how it works. And you have to be, you have to be humble if you're gonna, you know, try and do something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think f for me, um, you know, and I even I, I hesitate to even to even say this in a way, but um, where I kind of where, where my um, skepticism per se comes into play is is more about um, the belief in in a kind of in something in music that transcends, uh, you know, the rational or the measurable. But when I hear you speak, I think, oh, is that just a like a, a totally naive delusion? And <laughs> Could we eventually, could science eventually break down everything about music perception into into quantifiable things? I might be a little a little I would be interested in that, but also a little terrified by it, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I think that would be the whole thing is like even if you did have that, like imagine a paper came out tomorrow with some like complex, you know, goofy machine learning model that like talks about it. Like it's only gonna be in one context at one time and like I think that's the whole thing, is like music is just so massive as a research discipline you know like there's so many even just like modes of perception and modes of listening um and uh i just don't think it's possible like i think people can do weird stuff and like cool stuff that will be uh that people wouldn't have thought of maybe like 50 years ago or like 100 years in the future but i don't think that there's this, this like grand unified theory of explanation that could ever be happen that could ever happen well that's good to I mean, know <laughs> yeah. that's my own opinion i could of course i'm pre-registering that as a prediction so maybe if someone <laughs> listens to this in a hundred years they'll, they'll they'll again laugh like who is this guy <laughs> like <laughs> yeah yeah um so uh 
earlier when you were describing your own research into the you know the Wagner opera, um, you talked a bit about you know familiarity with genre and the perception of genre, and that's really uh, in my project. Um, I'm I'm exploring you know why people like the music they like and hate what they hate. Uh, in your work or in work you've read, are there any insights uh, into that? Um, yeah, there's definitely a big literature on personal preference. And I guess it depends like where you want to like dive into it. So there's like a lot of psychology people who really try to link it to personality um, and talk about how basically certain aspects of personality are predictive of specific ways of thinking about genre. And of course, like, again, as in with all things science, it's like a very specific level of explanation and behavior and a lot of cultural baggage about like what comes into how you're going to try to pin down science or pin down genre when you make mm -hmm. these models that kind of formalize your intuitions. But like that's the whole thing with with science is that you have to like at the end of the day like commit to something so you can figure out whether or not you're like right or wrong or someone is less wrong or more right than you. Um, so some people do it with personality and they try to link the five, uh, the ocean, uh, big five personality traits to these ways of thinking about genre that have to do with like familiar people's perception of the familiarity of genre. And mm -hmm. then there's also some other like newer stuff relating to, I think, just like thinking about you know, genre more as like clustering of like human behavior and like similarity of people's taste. So it doesn't necessarily matter about like, you know, what the name of the genre is, but what matters more, like if you're a big music recommendation engine, is that someone else who listens to things that are very similar to you has also listened to something that you haven't listened to. So they'll like, you know, of course, recommend that. And like whatever mm -hmm. that constellation of data is, you can call it a genre, um, depending on who's talking about it. But it's also important to remember, like, you know, who you're talking to. Like when I talk to my grandma about music, you know, I'm going to use very different vocabulary than when I talk to my other friends who have PhDs and like think about questions of genre and style and, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, we're almost half an hour into our talk and we haven't even... Uh, crack the the nominal subject uh, of what I wanted to, to of what you know interested me in in talking to you initially, which is uh, the Brainwaves project. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was a few years ago. So hopefully I will remember everything correctly. Um, but I was contacted by um, a music agency in London. It's called the Soundscape Agency. They were interested in doing a project with some commercial partners, um, so Citizen M Hotels and Bose Headphones and the Erase Tapes record label. And the idea was to try to essentially marry, you know, the artistic with the scientific in a project in creating music that was going to like do something. The do something was inspired by Citizen M Hotels. So to give a like a one sentence summary on them, they're basically a hotel chain for like, you know, business people who don't want to stay in like a grungy 
uh, you know, place that's kind of cheap somewhere, but it's like a bit fun and you stay there maybe one or two nights and it's just sort of the, the minimal structure that you would need to, um, to have a nice time in a cool city. So their idea was like, okay, well, we'll give our guests music that like helps them with things associated with travel. So like falling asleep or focusing or, um, I think it was like having anxiety due to like maybe the, you know, flights or whatever. So knowing that there's like this psychological state that one of the stakeholders wanted people to get to, the question was, okay, how do we take um, these musicians and what we know from the world of science and like make music that might be able to push people into that state? So the whole project was about that. And it was going to result in something that the Erase Tapes record label could release as part of their actual um, catalog. So I worked as the scientist to try to shape the musical briefs and then create sort of um, scientific tests, if you will, um, to look at the extent to which this music was successful or not in doing what we set out to do. Right. So, um, so essentially, it's music that is, you know, scientifically, I don't want to say proven, but scientifically tested to induce certain states of mind, i.e. relaxation. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's good to yeah avoid language like proven or, you know, whatever. But it was designed for that. So like, and I think one of the more interesting things that didn't make it really into like the press release of it all or whatnot was we really wanted to, or at least maybe I wanted to kind of pit this idea of like music creation of like human expertise versus like that of like algorithmic competition, composition, sorry. Okay. And, um, you know, like a few years ago, I think that's when like Brain FM and all these companies were trying to like push music that like does something for you. And that was like a proliferation of it on YouTube, you know, like music for focus, music at this, you know, specific hertz does this thing to your brain or whatever, which is all the stuff I was like, we can't do this. Like we need to avoid this because people will, you know, some people will just sort of see, I, in my opinion, right through that. Um, because the mechanism in which they purport it to work by saying like this hurts in the music does this to the brain waves of your thing uh, doesn't necessarily work that way but rather the idea was like okay what if we just like take composers who are experts in what they do and instead of giving them a prompt for like composing for television or composing for a movie we say now you're going to compose for this specific seed or not seed this specific feeling that we want someone to necessarily have and so like i wanted it to be more about like okay you know what happens when you just set a bunch of parameters and let a machine go versus you give it to an expert composer versus something else didn't of course you know these types of projects you never have as much time and money as you want um mm -hmm. but that that was kind of the the vibe of the whole thing right and did you uh, come to any conclusions uh, about that in particular yeah i mean it, it was nothing again super striking or strong in this particular project like it's in these types of experiments it's really important to you know you look at like the final results right and like what are you comparing well the music that was specifically made versus music that was algorithmically made versus maybe some sort of like active control right and what you hope to see in whatever design it um 
you're looking at is that the stuff that like you know that you want or maybe uh, the client wants or you know you think would be most effective ends up being most effective right so if you're comparing you know in our situation we were hoping that the human created composition would perform better on these uh, designs that we made than like the algorithm except which it did um, which was quite nice but then you have like the question that you should ask if you're a science skeptic not skeptic but like a science you know someone's just critical of asking the next question which is like well what other tracks could substitute for that to get similar effects and like why would those be there so that would be the next point of departure for this project um, which of course we ended up not being doing because it was sort of like a you know a one-off project where there's an idea and there's a lot of sort of other interests in the science of course it was like done correctly and and whatnot um but it is limited in terms of like any big things that you can take away from a project like that right um so earlier you talked about a you know a trend uh towards music that purported to have certain effects on the brain and 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 you, and you were a bit skeptical or, or critical uh of that uh is that just because it's not it's not quite as cut and dry it's not as simple as that yeah i think that's the easy way to put it i think the thing that i have a problem with is like the purported mechanism right so you say like you know music with you know has this seven hertz thing in there is going to always you know deterministically lead to this other thing uh like this mm. specific experience um in the mind and like music does have the power to change your physiological and emotional and like you know, if you're a spiritual state, like anyone that listens to music, most people, when they're asked in these big surveys, like, why do you listen to music? Most people respond is to regulate emotions, um, if I remember correctly. Um, but like the way that it does it, right? So we know it does it at, at like one level of explanation, say music, mm-hmm. mood, listen to music, change the mood most people buy that that works (laughs) but there's a lot of other variables at play right like why would you listen to music in that situation what specific moods um you know are more conducive to music doing this are there individual differences of people who are more likely to listen to specific pieces of music you know is it the music itself as if we imagine genre is a stable construct and this genre has an ability to do this or is it something about like agency and congruency of being able to select music that you want to listen to in a specific context that does it. And like, that's where the academic literature comes in. Cause there's so many ways in which it could go wrong. Right. Um, but like, if you want to get a bunch of views on YouTube, you know, what would you want to say? Like this, you know, does this. And like, you, then you of course get the selection bias of people that are like, yeah, I bet this works. It's like, like kind of like I imagine hypnosis is more effective on people who believe hypnosis is a very form, very effective form of, mood regulation and then you know you go on and do it and like you're already in the right mindset because you want it to work and everybody knows the placebo effect is strong and it might not be the placebo but it might you know it might not or you don't you just don't know until you really sit down and kind of like run the amount of experiments that you need to come up with an explanation that people find super convincing and by people i mean trained scientists (laughs) yeah yeah of course um, so, okay, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot in there to talk about. So, I mean, I think we all know, or we can mostly agree, 
on certain things about regulating emotion, like, you know, minor keys in, evoke like a melancholy feeling or like an upbeat song might give you more energy. Um, are there are there other more subtle ways that music can uh, can regulate mood or, or emotions? Um, I don't know. In the sense that like, it feels like even those descriptions sometimes can be a bit like coarse. So like uh, some of the, the big stuff that's been happening and some of the music emotion literature is really trying to like split up like sad music the past couple of years. So that's it's a, quite a popular topic and people try to divorce like, well, what do you mean when you say like, you know, sad music? Like you can group it all together, but like um, can you also, you know, differentiate feelings of like sorrow versus feelings of grief? And are they both sad and they, do they fall under the same umbrella? And there are also people who really don't like listening to sad music. So, like, I know, like, my sister, for example, just, like, doesn't like listening to sad music, whereas I really do like it. Um, and it's, like, we have very similar tastes in a lot of other music that we listen to, um, but we're different in that respect. So, like, to, again, to think of it, like, so, de like, high-level deterministically as saying, like, happy music does this, because there's also then the question with music and emotion is like, is it felt or perceived emotions? So I think what you're were alluding to is like music can be universally, not universally, within maybe a specific context, recognized as having a specific perception. Like it's trying to convey that maybe it's culturally conditioned. Maybe there are specific things in the musical structure itself. Um, but that's also very different than it having an effect on you. So I can also I can listen to sad music without necessarily being sad myself and I can recognize it very well um, in that same context so like I know enough about music and emotions maybe to be dangerous in a conversation like this but not so much that I'd be like ah oh, this is the current state of it and um, and this is what you should you know this is what we now know it, to me it's more about like questioning what are like like the observational categories when we say like sad or you know, happy, like, what do we necessarily mean by that? And are those even helpful when we try to pin them down in a scientific context? Yeah, true. Um, did, did you say that this, this has been happening, th this kind of research has been happening in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think maybe the past 10 years or so, people have been really into the whole sad music thing. Um, right. Uh, there's, I, I somehow, yeah. I don't know if I misheard you or I, I thought initially that you said the past couple of beers <laughs> that made me think that, you know, we, that must, that could also be related to the way people, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's a huge thing as well too, that it's like, I'm sure would be a great subject for people to something you kind of like intuitively know as folk psychology, like music sounds better after a few beers or like after like smoking some weed or whatever, but like, you know. There are probably systematic things in which music, as opposed to other forms of perception, might lend again to understanding about cognition in a way. But of course, like, you know, drug research isn't as well funded as other research. Maybe, maybe for good, maybe for bad, who knows? But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely has an effect. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know if I can, can really articulate this, but when I heard about the brainwaves project and the notion that you know this music was designed uh to to induce certain uh you know mental or emotional states 
I thought, well, you know, this, I, I like the idea of this music uh, created, you know, scientifically crafted for relaxation. But then my paranoid side immediately thought, like, if they can do that, could they also scientifically craft music to invoke uh, or to induce other emotions? Um, you know, I don't know if that's a, 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 a silly question, but it, it, it got me thinking along the, you know, with, with the, with, with the power that say Spotify has to just like artificial, like, uh, I don't even know if you want to make like a turn Cambridge Analytica into a verb or whatever, you know, basically manipulate people. Yeah. Well, to, to, yeah. To shape people's emotions because yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we know that, that, that big data and tech and, you know, surveillance, capitalism, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it, have the, the power to manipulate and shape um, people's uh, emotional state. So, you know, could music be used for that? Or is that total paranoia talking? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, historically speaking, so, you know, pre surveillance capitalism, you know, that's kind of like what composers are always trying to do. They're like, they really want you to feel a specific thing at a specific time. And like, that's almost, you know, it's like a caricature of it when it comes to like film music, right? Like you want to write, sure. even though it's the film music, I know is like added after the track or whatever, but like the whole idea is you want it to have an effect on the listener a lot of the time. So if you ask composers, like they want to, a lot of the time, it's not like they want to like, oh, I want to make the most intellectual composition. Like they want their listeners to feel something, you know, when they're writing or performing music, but it's becomes different. Yeah. In the context of, you know, what is music, what are they trying to make music do and, and manipulate people? Yeah, it's, I, I know there are people working on it. I can like send you some references um, that maybe you could add as like links to the, the podcast. I don't want to misspeak. For sure. Uh, then make you uh, have to edit out all the people who I misremembered as not uh, <laughs> researching the subject. But I definitely do know there are people who are quite interested um, yeah, in this idea and like, what does that mean for like shaping genre and like changing the language that we use to talk about music? And um, it's it's quite a, I mean, even like this was book back in 1956, this, uh, Leonard Meyer's Emotion and Meaning in Music. Like he does, there's like one or two sentences in like the first paragraph. He's like, well, maybe it's just all about mood, you know, and it's and music shapes mood. And then he gets back to talking about, you know, uh, emotion perception like kind of what we were talking about before so like these ideas have been around for quite a while but yes the scale and capacity i think that's really capturing a lot of academics attention right now mm, yeah for sure well there's a lot out there so now you said the brainwaves project was a few years ago for you uh, what have you been working on more recently yeah so i've been kind of like jumping around in terms of uh research projects that are closer to probably my more academic um, interests recently. So quite interested in melodic memory. Uh, so I dreamed up this like really horrible serial recall experiment for some of my music friends. So my idea was like, okay, well, if I'm gonna you know make this cell that like, there's something intrinsically interesting about music that can like teach us about cognition and memory. I was like, well, what, you know, how can we really get at that at like the atomic level? Um, so it ended up doing like an experiment where people with who are really, really good at movable dough solfege, 
which for people who aren't aware, the listeners, um, it's like the Julie Andrews Doe a Deer, a female deer song, right? So you're like, every single note is associated with a specific scale degree. And in music school, you get really, really good at this. So you can do it, of course, in every key. So when you hear music, you can identify what syllables are associated with every single pitch. And that like helps you transcribe stuff. So it's like this really, really cool party trick that you learn as a music student that does help with like aspects of performance and like um, thinking in music. So you want to use the Gary Karpinski uh, way to think about things. So I said, okay, well, if people can do this really crazy skill that doesn't require having absolute or perfect pitch, like what if you just played people melodies and tried to ask them to recall the tones like one by one after this? So I did an experiment um, where people uh, basically had to do that task and um, we've been analyzing the data for the past year or so and hopefully trying to get that published. And that's all about like comparing these um different ideas about like what would predict this well so if you had to think like which melodies are easier to remember and which ones aren't given a list of ways that you could think about uh, melodies are some more helpful you know than others i've been doing some other things at this my current job which is looking at uh essentially audio branding at scale so there's also questions of memory and semantic association at scale so if you're wanted to put music into your you know ad and your nike or something and you want to sort of change the aesthetic of the visual branding you know what music should you choose especially considering questions about like licensure and um whether or not like how much this music is going to cost you as a company um right and then there's a few other things that are a bit more I think more humanistic so I'm quite interested in this like what's called like corpus studies and corpus studies uh, is basically instead of being like a typical music theorist in which you're saying oh I'm looking at this maybe this one or two three pieces of music that's like really interesting reflections about why a specific person at a specific point of time made a specific musical choice and then trying to find maybe meaning or value in that Corpus studies is kind of like the maybe other side of that in which you say, okay, I'm going to like collect tons and tons and tons of melodies and use that as data and try to analyze it or maybe use it in a way that helps us understand music more generally. Uh, and I've been thinking about questions about what does that data necessarily actually represent, you know, when we use it in our studies and write about it and, and our, you know, machine learning models and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That sounds like a very broad topic. Um, yeah. I feel bad. I'm like, I'm kind of all over the place here. I'm going to listen to this in a few years and I'll be like, Oh my God, I was just like thinking about everything. But I'm also like, I'm at this point in my career where I'm at like a sort of a perpetual postdoc at this point where like all I, you know, most of my livelihood just comes from thinking and writing about and um, these ideas academically. And I kind of have a, you know, fire up and uh, anything goes mentality. I'm just sort of follow my interests and maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. Um, well, that's not a bad place to be. Right? Yeah, no, I'm very, I'm very thankful for this, this positioning. Yeah. Um, well, Dave, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me 
you've given me a lot to think about and a lot uh, to research. Um, I, f I feel like for someone like me, you know, these ideas kind of like pop. This is this is all part of education, right? Like you have an idea, you think it's your idea, and then you find out that not only have other people had the idea, but their entire uh, schools yeah. um, <laughs> dedicated to studying this idea. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very humbling, but but very interesting at the same time. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I've really enjoyed chatting about this. It's always fun to um, I think I spend so much time doing like research and writing and thinking my own thoughts that I, I really like talking about these ideas because they are really, really interesting. Um, and it definitely is a different way to think about music. In some ways, it feels like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely it's definitely different than the way that most music schools present how you could think about the category of whatever is music yeah for sure well thanks again for your time all right thank you that's our show i hope you enjoyed it this is episode number 30 of what is this music um if you're new just joining us uh go back and check out the archives there's some interesting stuff there Otherwise, you can follow uh, What Is This Music on Facebook. You can follow me, Malcolm Fraser, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Find out other things uh, that I'm up to. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work on the What Is This Music book. And I will be popping in from time to time with uh, some more of these pop-up episodes. Um, it's always a pleasure to share this journey with you as I try to find out what is this music. <laughs>